Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, today we are picking up in Acts chapter 10, and we will get through uh, verses 9 through 23 today. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this day, for this time to gather together. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy, for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, that we can be good stewards of these resources and that we can set aside time to fellowship together, to pray, to worship, and to study in your word. Father, we pray this morning as we take this time to look into this uh, passage in Acts that this will be a time of fruitful understanding. And Father, we just pray that this morning's time together will be honoring to you and edifying to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just doing a quick introduction, in the previous pericope, we saw where God worked providentially to connect Cornelius, a Roman centurion living in Caesarea, with Peter, who was living in Joppa, about 30 miles south. Now, Cornelius is described as a God-fearer, a term that is used throughout the Bible a few times, especially in Acts. And you see it in Acts 10.2 and then again in Acts 10.22 where you have this description of Cornelius as a God-fearer. Now, God-fearers were Gentiles who were drawn to the simplicity of monotheism and the high morality that was offered through the Mosaic Law in Judaism. You see, the Greeks and the Romans, by and large, were polytheistic. That means that they believed in many gods. And the gods were themselves very fickle and violent, often at war with each other. And this made it very unpredictable. You really didn't know what to expect. You really didn't know which god to bet on, as it were, uh, in this polytheistic system. And when you look at the Greek and the Roman gods, really they were just amplified humanity. (laughs) And really amplified humanity, not at his best, but at his worst. So again, their gods were little more than amplified representations of humanity, and the multiplicity of gods made their whole religious system very unstable. As a God-fearer, Cornelius showed signs of positive volition, and he sought the Lord in prayer and through acts of kindness. Now, prayer and acts of kindness in an unbeliever have no saving value. However, in the case of Cornelius, they demonstrated positive volition toward God, Uh, So the Lord sent him gospel information that he could believe in Christ for salvation. And you'll see that most notably in Acts 10, 24 through 44, through the next section, uh, where Peter is called and he goes to the house of Cornelius. And so not only did Cornelius, but his household as a whole demonstrated positive volition. Uh, towards the Lord, because it's not only Cornelius who is going to come to faith in Christ, but so is his entire household. Now, Cornelius was not saved, but he would be, and this after hearing and responding to the gospel of grace. And well, this, this becomes most notable in Acts chapter 11, where Peter, uh, after he goes to the house of Cornelius, once he gets back, he gives a report in Acts chapter 11, 
And you see in the first couple verses where Peter gets in trouble, as it were, with the local community of uh, Jews at, uh, in, in the region where he was living down in Joppa. And they challenged him as to why, were you, why would you go to this house of this, this Gentile house? Uh, because this was not a common practice. This was not something that the Jews practiced at this time. But Peter defends himself, and he explains that he was under marching orders by the Lord himself. And by the way, what you have in this section is really a good example of evangelism. Because God, the Holy Spirit, uh, is the uh, orchestrator of evangelism. And he sets up these situations. And it's just very interesting. But Peter recounts the words of Cornelius in Acts 11. Uh, and it says here in verse eleven thirteen, it says, And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And then verse 14 tells us, And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So you have uh, not only Cornelius, but his household, again, demonstrating positive volition. So what we're going to look at today in the section that I'm covering is the account of God's providence to orchestrate an evangelistic opportunity. By the way, we don't have to manufacture these opportunities. We just have to recognize what God the Holy Spirit is doing in the heart of an individual. And when we recognize that, well, then sharing the gospel becomes easy. Uh, You don't have to resort to all sorts of tactics and gimmicks to try to get people to come to faith in Christ. Uh, you're just simply giving them the information, but there's been a lot of prep work that's go, that goes on. The Holy Spirit, remember when in John 16, when Jesus explained that the Holy Spirit uh, was going to come into the world, and this would be uh, in a special ministry, because as God, as God, He's omnipresent. But on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit began a special ministry in the world, and part of that ministry was to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the word sin there in John uh, 16, I think it's verse 8, is singular, not plural, because it's one sin. And Jesus said specifically of sin because they believe not upon me. So the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of unbelievers to convict them of one particular sin, and that is the sin of unbelief in Christ. So when somebody is positive to the Lord and they're responding to the Spirit's ministry in their heart, uh, then when we show up, Uh, All we do is give clear gospel information, and that person who is positive to the Lord will believe. Now, we're going to see in this example here where, uh, where Leon has already pointed out, where an angel has been involved too, because God sent this angel to Cornelius, and Cornelius is operating from the directive set forth by this angel. In this sense, we see where even angels are involved in evangelism. So there's a lot of moving parts going on here. Let's see if we can make some sense of this. So Luke tells us in Acts 10.9, on the next day as they were on their way, and this would be uh, the, uh, the group that Cornelius had sent down to Joppa, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, we, what I find fascinating is that we observe these events occurring in time and space as Luke employs the words day and hour and city and housetop. And this shows that these were real people who lived in real time and real space. This is not like uh, mythology, okay? Uh, This is uh, historical narrative 
is what we see here. Now, Cornelius' servants had traveled the 30 miles south from Caesarea to Joppa in a day, which meant either they were on horseback or perhaps they traveled all night. Uh, But once they left, by the next day, they arrived in Joppa. Now, the sixth hour, and remember, the Bible always has to be interpreted from the time and the culture within which it was written. So when Luke tells us that it was the sixth hour, this would have been noontime. And it may have reflected a pattern in Peter's prayer life. And you see this in other examples uh, where you see godly believers had a habit of prayer at certain times of the day. In fact, in Psalm 55, which is a psalm of David, uh, you have this, uh, this reference here in Psalm 55, 17, where David says, Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. And if you read the whole psalm, David is in great distress over a close friend that has betrayed a friendship. And, uh, and so David is at a point of distress here. But he's noticed the pattern here of evening and morning and at noon. And you see the same thing with Daniel, by the way. Uh, in Daniel 6.10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So you find these examples where people had a structured prayer life, a disciplined prayer life. And uh, the more I study uh, Scripture, the more I realize that much of the uh, Christian life or even the godly life is really a disciplined life. It's a discipline of mind. It's a discipline of habit, of study, of thought, of word, of action. And, and so I see these patterns here that, uh, that reinforce this. Now, the Lord would use this situation to teach Peter a theological truth. So you have to picture the situation. He's up on the rooftop. It's about noontime. And it tells us here in the next verse, uh, in verses 10 through 14, it says, But he became hungry. So here's Peter. He's up on the rooftop. He's starting to experience gut grumblings. The technical term for that is called borborygmy. Borborygmy. You can look it up sometime. Borborygmy. It simply refers to the gut grumblings uh, that go on when we are hungry. So he's hungry, and I imagine Peter's up on the rooftop and he's experiencing some borborygmy. So he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, A voice came to him, uh, Peter, get up, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So here's Peter. Now he's up on the rooftop and he has this vision uh, that he goes into this uh, trance, as it were. And the word behind this is the word we get in the English as the word ecstatic. And here I think it means that that there was a, a temporary suspension of conscious awareness, that he goes into this state of a trance, and this seems to be divinely induced in this particular situation. And while he's in this state, he has a vision. And in the vision, Peter saw the sky open up and saw what appeared to him something like a great sheet coming down to the ground. Now on the sheet was a variety of animals, crawling creatures, and birds. 
And Peter heard the Lord's voice uh, instruct him, saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, the Lord's directive was a command with two verbs in the imperative mood, thusan kai fage. And so you have two commands here, to rise, uh, to kill, and to eat uh, is what's set forth here. Now, the word fage is interesting. Uh, I first encountered that word uh, back when I was doing postgraduate studies in classical literature at Texas Tech University, and I spent a semester uh, taking a course on etymology. And etymology is the study of the roots of words. And so you learn these root meanings in the Greek and the Latin. And, uh, and you learn about technical words like hemi-demi-semi-quaver uh, and words like triskaidekaphobia, triskaideka 13, phobos, fear of, ilorophobia, fear of cats. But one of the words that we learned was anthropophaginianophobia. And that breaks down into three words, anthropos, man, phagain, to eat, phobos, fear of. So an anthropophaginian is a cannibal. <laughs> it's somebody who eats people. But that word phagain is that word to eat, and that's the word that appears here. So just a little aside there. Uh, no charge for that, by the way. But you have this word phagate, and here it's in the imperative mood, which is the uh, command here to eat. So he tells him to kill and to eat. Thusan kaifage. Now the Mosaic law distinguished between clean and unclean animals. And if one touched or ate an unclean animal, one became ceremonially unclean. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 11. Now the primary reason for the vision was really didactic. It was intended to be instructive, that is to teach Peter, really that he was now to accept the Gentiles as equal in the body of Christ and that he should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now that's later on in the chapter. I'm not going to cover it uh, extensively here. That's in Leon's section next week. But really the end result of the message, according to Acts 10.28, was that he should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, in the church age, God has declared all foods clean. So we are not under any of the dietary restrictions. You can think of like in Mark 7.19, where Jesus in uh, Mark 7.19 said, because it, does not go out, uh, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. And then you have this parenthetical statement that says, thus he declared all foods clean. Paul said in Romans 14.14 14, that nothing speaking of foods here, is unclean in itself. And then Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. And 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So we do not deal with these uh, uh, religious dietary restrictions. But, Peter being human, old habits die hard. And isn't that true for all of us? Uh, just, it's hard to let go of some old habits. And that, and that paradigm of thinking, just that way of thinking and learning something new. And uh, Peter was one of these guys that, uh, he was a little thick. I, I like Peter. It kind of resonates with me. I think I can be that way a little bit too at times. But... We learn here in Peter that old habits die hard, and Peter was challenged here to conform to the new standard. Uh, and by the way, this was not the first time that Peter had resisted the Lord. You have other examples. 
uh, and sometimes in threes, especially when he denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. But you think of the passage over in Matthew 16, 22, where Jesus for the first time began to tell his disciples... It says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter didn't like this. He didn't like this information at all. In fact, we learn uh, that Peter quite boldly, it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Peter rebuking the Lord. And he says, God forbid it, Lord. It's like saying, God forbid it, God. Uh, This shall never happen to you. Now, at this moment, Peter is an enemy of the cross. And if Peter had had his way, Christ would not have gone to the cross. And so Peter needed to be corrected. And we need to be corrected from time to time, too. And sometimes the Lord can be strong with us as well. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, the term satanos means adversary, one who opposes And it's hard to know whether the Lord is talking about Peter or whether he's really recognizing the spiritual force behind Peter. I tend to think the latter. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. So he's he's talking to Peter, but there seems to be this address to this spiritual force behind. But nonetheless, we see where Peter uh, resisted the Lord. Also, remember in John 13, 8, remember when Jesus was... Uh, washing the disciples' feet when the King of, Co- King of Kings and Lord of Lords in a moment demonstrates himself as the servant of servants when he lays aside his garments and takes a towel and uh, gets down on his hands and knees and washes the disciples' feet. And he comes around to Peter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. So Peter didn't like this. And so Peter has this, uh, this pattern. But again, I, I like that Peter's real, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get with Peter. Now, ultimately, really, God was teaching Peter that he has declared Gentiles and Jews equal in the body of Christ and that the wall of division had been removed. And God used repetition for emphasis as well as to seat the matter in Peter's mind. So he gives him this directive not once, not twice, but again three times. Now, as God was gracious and persistent uh, with Peter, uh, Luke tells us, uh, verses 15 and 16, Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, the timing of the vision was intended to prepare Peter for what followed. And again, everything is timed perfectly according to God's providence. Because as soon as the vision ends, Luke tells us, Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind, uh, while he was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. So here you have Peter up on the rooftop. He's contemplating all this. He's ruminating on this vision and these directives, and he's puzzled by it. He's, he's trying to work it out. In the meantime, downstairs, uh, downstairs we have these men. We're going to learn here in a little bit that there were six of them. And they're down there banging on the gate, and they're asking, is Peter here? So now Peter does not know that they're downstairs. 
But here we see God's providence at work as he prepares Peter and Cornelius' servants to meet for the first time. But again, Peter did not know that Cornelius' men were at the gate. And so verses 19 and 20 tells us, So while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now this shows that God the Holy Spirit is really behind evangelism. Now, what we're going to see here in a little bit, and by the way, when it says, I myself, uh, I have sent them myself, it's interesting because when you go back and you read through the narrative, when Cornelius gets a visitor, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's an angel. But the angel comes with the directives, go, find this man named Peter, he's staying at the Tanner's house. But here it backs up even further, and the Holy Spirit says, for I have sent them. And you begin to look, when you think about the issue of providence, you begin to think about secondary and tertiary um, uh, indicators, or people who are actors. So God, uh, from this, we, we can back up and we can say God sent the angel, and the angel gave the directive, and ultimately it was God the Holy Spirit who, who sent these men to Peter. So again, this shows that God the Holy Spirit is behind evangelism. Now, Peter, being positive to the Lord and to his directives, obeyed and did as he, as he was told. And Luke records, he says, But Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to to come to his house and hear a message from, from you. And then we're given the result in verse 23. So he, that's Peter, invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, I need to make a correction here. I said that there were six men that were sent from from Caesarea. It was actually three, but when Peter goes to Caesarea, he's going to be traveling with six of his companions. So, correction on that note real quick. So, Peter here displayed hospitality to his guests by inviting them in and giving them a place to sleep for the night. Now think about this. This would be a big change because here in, within the, the Jewish communities, they, they didn't eat with the Gentiles. They certainly didn't, didn't interact with him. Again, when you get to Acts 11, you're going to see where Peter is uh, called to account for why he would go up and enter the house of this Gentile. But think about what's going on here. Peter is welcoming these Gentiles into his home. This would be a first for Peter in this particular situation. Not only is he going to invite them in, but he's going to treat them hospitably. He's going to give them food to eat and lodging for the night. Again, new experience. And you you really have to go back and place yourself in the situation and think about how radically different this would have been for Peter to go through this situation. So again, Peter displayed hospitality to his guests by inviting them in and giving them a place to sleep for the night. And again, this was a big change for Peter. For Jews did not normally entertain Gentiles, let alone lodge them in their home 
for the night. Again, big shift here. But this is part of what happens in these dispensational shifts where you have uh, new standards that are being set forth. Now, they left the next morning and journeyed from Joppa to Caesarea, and some of Peter's Jewish brethren came along with him. So here's the six traveling partners that he's going to have travel with him. And one wonders in this situation, because I thought about this too, why God did not use Philip to preach to Cor- uh, why God did not use Philip to preach to Cornelius and family, since we know from Acts 8:40 that Philip was already up in Caesarea, and he was already doing evangelistic work. And so one has to wonder, well, why didn't he use Philip? I think it's because he's wanting to teach Peter a lesson, and because he's going to be working through Peter, Peter has to. Uh, learn this lesson. He has to go through this, uh, this paradigm shift in his thinking. So he calls for Peter to be the one to come up. And one has to wonder what would have happened if Peter had continued to say no to the Lord. Well, we might think about Jonah in that situation. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes God's people do say no. And then the Lord has to deal with them in a different way. So, pretty straightforward passage. Now, the central idea of the text, let's take up a quick summary here, and then we'll look at some present application. Now, the central idea of the text is that God revealed to Peter that Gentiles and Jews are both equally acceptable to him in Christ. And this is something that is going to be unpacked in the verses ahead and then in the next chapter as well. But it's introduced here in seed form. Now, as I thought about some present application here, I thought that there were some uh, theological principles that we could extrapolate. One is that God is the one who works to create evangelistic opportunities as he works behind the scenes, creating and controlling circumstances for his purposes. And here we observe an example where an angel was used as a ministering spirit sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And I remember a couple years ago, I did a series of Bible lessons on angelology, and this was one of the passages we looked at because the Hebrews uh, 1.14 is very interesting because it, it demonstrates that angels are involved in the process of evangelism. Now, how does that work? I don't know. But clearly, we're told that they are involved, and, and the passage uh, at hand demonstrates that because it was an angel of the Lord that was sent to the household of Cornelius to give him directives. And though God used an angel to tell Cornelius what to do, the sharing of the gospel, by the way, is a privilege for humans. And Peter was the Lord's man to share that salvific information. Because again, one could think, well, the angel had information. In fact, God could have just spoken directly uh, to Cornelius and company. But God has delegated the responsibility of sharing the good news of the gospel Uh, with believers. And so this is our role. And by the way, you have a lot of moving parts here, don't you? But it demonstrates the human involvement and how God brings us in to participate in these evangelistic opportunities, which God is the one who is orchestrating. He's the one who's setting all this up. Number two, by God's sovereign design, uh, by God's sovereign will, he controls all the events of our lives. And things that we consider mundane or coincidence are used by him to direct us to the places and people that he has predetermined. In this way, we, are no, we know that there are no accidental events in our lives nor chance encounters with other people. 
We know from Ephesians 1.11 that God is working all things after the counsel of His will. And Romans 8.28 tells us that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And I know that the events in my life are ultimately orchestrated by the Lord. His providence is always at work, always at work. And when I meet somebody, and I don't care if it's at, at work, if it's, a, if it's a client, if it's somebody in the community, a new neighbor, I never take those as mere chance events. I see that as an opportunity. I see that as something that God orchestrated that event for me to meet this person. And I, I, I see these as events that God is using, again, to uh, direct human history. Because history isn't just a, a random series of events like marbles rolling around on a board. History's going somewhere because God is directing history. And we know that history is ultimately going to the return of Christ because Christ is coming back. And we know that there is a flow to history. And we are encouraged by this because things can at times seem a little chaotic, especially when we think about our government and our current state of affairs. Uh, and other matters, but I won't go down that road at the moment. Point number three, God used a visual aid and repetition as pedagogical tools to help Peter uproot a lifetime of thinking that was now a hindrance to his spiritual service. And there's a lot that's packed into that, but God uses this tool. He's very gracious with Peter. He's very clear, but he's very gracious. And uh, the, the repetition there, Uh, is encouraging to me because usually I have to hear things several times before I get it too. So, you know, I'm glad for these examples with Peter. But the Lord was changing his historical program through the institution of the church and the separation that existed historically between Jews and Gentiles uh, was, was being removed. Now, Peter originally said to God, by no means, Lord, uh, Peter, having originally said to God, by no means Lord, soon realized himself as teachable and willing to adjust his theology and life as God corrected him. And that's a challenge. And theology must have application. And the correction of Peter's theology became evident when he actually went with the Gentiles to the house of Cornelius. So it has shoe leather. It has real application. And I thought about this on a very personal level. It's tough to make personal changes in ministry because we are challenged at times to unseat long-standing values and traditions, which may have served us well at one time, but are no longer useful. Inertia is easier and requires no action to change, (laughs) right? And uh, sometimes I find this to be true, I hate to say it, the older I get. Um... However, if we're unwilling to change, it may prove actually harmful to ministry. And in Peter's case, inertia would have rendered him useless as a servant of the Lord and may have even brought divine discipline. Again, I think of Jonah. So again, just a few interesting points there. And I will close it out with these final words. So in closing, if you are here this morning without Christ and without hope and without eternal life, I want you to know that when Jesus was on the cross, he had you personally in mind as he bore your sin and paid the price for it. He died and paid the penalty for your sin so that you would not have to. Scripture reveals in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. And 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Now, and he did this so that he might bring us to God. That was ultimately the, dread, the, the uh, intention that we might be reconciled to God through the death of Christ. So the good news for us is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that if we place our faith in Him as the only Savior, then we are promised forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a place in heaven forever. I love Acts 4.12, which says, For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Because man needs only Christ to be saved. And so to believe in Christ as Savior results in eternal life. And this morning I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day, for this time of fellowship together, for this time of worship and study in your word. We thank you for this passage, Father, which is helpful to us to understand lessons uh, that you would have for us as we consider Peter and how you worked with him. And Father, we just pray this morning as we uh, close out this message that this will be a time in which we might be challenged in our understanding, that we might be able to take the truths of your word and apply them to our lives and to grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any questions over this morning's passage?